We've been living through what we could consider an ego era. An, e an era in which the ego structure and ego functioning is the dominant aspect of consciousness. This has not always been the case. In fact, if you remember our four levels of analysis, it used to be the case long, long ago that the Paramatman was actually the dominant force in consciousness and uh, ruling over the phenomenal plane. And then there was a second Yuga, that was called, well, I won't even say it was Satyuga, it was actually not, it was actually Sangam Yuga. Satyuga, the Atman reigns. And then there's a Treta Yuga, which, in which the Atman and the soul uh, are together, but the Atman is still dominant. And then there's a, a, a Dwapar Yuga, in which the, the relationship changes, the soul now gives birth to the ego, and the influence of the Atman dies away, and then there's a final Kali Yuga, in which the ego is completely dominant. So, <clears throat> at the beginning of Kali Yuga, the ego was in its most coherent, powerful form. When any new structure is born, it's born in a sattvic state. It's born in its highest form, its purest, most archetypal form. And the ego is an archetype. And so, when the ego first forms and gradually takes over and creates an ego era because of its strength, and the soul is too exhausted and ripped apart by previous lifetimes to be able to remain the, the dominant factor, the ego takes gradually control over the social structures so that they become egos writ large. And everything mirrors that ego structure, macro and microcosmically. And the soul in that state is, um, is put on a reservation. And the reservation for the soul in our culture was the female. And so the female was to remain the oasis of soul consciousness while the male ego became dominant. Okay? And that was the whole idea of the patriarchy. And why women in, in nearly all cultures until this postmodern period remained covered and modest so they did not provoke a, a sexual reflex in males because they were not to be objects of sexual desire, they were to be the oasis of soul consciousness. They were to provide love uh, and support to the man who goes out and kills the monsters and brings back the butter and the bread and all of that, right? So, uh, the whole idea of the hunter-gatherer kind of thing, and the male is the hunter, and, and goes out and, and is the warrior, and is the, uh, uh, the one who, uh, who fights the battles out there while the women are raising the children, and that kind of a model, uh, gradually, of course, uh, became corrupted and degraded, and women would no longer stay in that ghetto uh, underneath the burqa, and they broke free but in order to then fight as egos. And the last bastion of soul consciousness dissipated and dissolved. 
So now we're at the point where we're at the end of the ego era. And the world, the geopolitical forces that needed a dominant egos in order to create corporations and uh, multinational organizations and central banks and all of that kind of apparatus, it needed strong egos. You can't create empires without massive egos. Well, <clears throat> the empires are collapsing. As you see today, the egos running, the empires don't know what they're doing, and the collapse is going uh, extraordinarily fast because there are idiots at the helm of all the ships or dodgem cars in, in this uh, earth plane, and there are no adults left, as they say, no, no beings who can function outside of this very nasty uh, egoic uh, paradigm. And uh, therefore, all uh, structures of authority have lost their legitimacy. And uh, they're coming apart because of power struggles and uh, conflicts of every sort, because egos cannot remain in harmony and cooperating with others. And uh, all of the things we've already discussed, I won't elaborate all of that again. <clears throat> but the point being, the geopolitical forces that run the world don't need or want egos anymore. They've replaced them with robots. Seriously, there are robots running the world today. And Skynet is in place, and the whole thing is computerized. And they are training men not even to want sex with a real woman, but with a sex bot, you know? Uh, there, there is a real political movement uh, to destroy the last vestiges of, of the, the human dignity and the human sense of, of spirituality uh, and taking away all meaning from relationship. And they do that deliberately through pornography and through a general dumbing down of the human ego. And that's what the educational system is meant to do. It's meant to make you lose your curiosity to learn and to repress your creativity and either to feel like you are a robot imprisoned in a system that doesn't want your creativity or your truth or your light or your love, just wants you to be a cog in a machine that doesn't function anyway. But the, the point is that you're not even trained to be aware of the fact that you're being dumbed down. Okay, So you will accept it all as a zombie and run the cash register or whatever you're assigned to do by the system. But it no longer wants leaders, it no longer wants really clear thinkers, it no longer wants uh, uh, beings who can uh, rebel, revolt against the system and overturn it to create something more beautiful and more meaningful. So the ego is on its way out. It's being destroyed by the system. We don't need to kill it, quite frankly. <laughs> Let the system do that. Okay, That's not really the, the problem. The, the, the ego is, is in a state of collapse. If the ego could still function, there would be no reason for this kind of a, uh, a healing institution. The ego cannot function. People cannot sustain their lives, not even their couple relationships. They can't raise children. They, they can't uh, run electric grids or even you know, drive the bus without going off the road. I mean, they, they can't do anything. They literally are functioning less and less well every day. Ask any employer, 
And their only real problem is personnel. They, they cannot find people who are reliable, who will pay attention long enough to be able to do something without dropping the ball or, you know, committing some, you know, horrible mistake and then quitting, you know, and saying, I don't want to work here anyway, you know, and none of them will be loyal to, uh, to a corporate mission. And, of course, the corporations long ago stopped being loyal to their employees. They used to hire people for life and give them pensions when they retired and all of that. It was a system in which there was still some mutual support. That's all dead. It's now savage, uh, cutthroat, and, and you're hired as a temp worker with no benefits and no future, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So they, they're not interested in developing people to higher levels of refinement and capacity uh, like they used to be. And, and the, the corporations and the other social and religious institutions had that function no longer, as obviously you know because of all the scandals that, that the, the corruption is actually causing the systems that are supposed to raise us to degrade us. Okay, I don't want to go too much into that, but that's the macrocosm. That's, that's not the, the, uh, the difficult point for us. We can accept all of that politically and understand uh, where the whole thing is going, but are we going to go down with the ship? Or is it possible to get off this Titanic before it sinks? That's really the only question. It's already hit the iceberg. We all know that. But there are still people in the casino playing you know, as if uh, there's plenty of time before we get into a lifeboat. Let me just you know, win one more hand of blackjack or whatever. Well, it's not going to work that way. Uh, but there are people who are deferring to the last minute, uh, awakening from this dumbed-down zombie condition. So it would be useful to know why, I, I think, right? Is anybody interested to know why? <laughs> Have you thought about this? This is a, a major problem. For me, it's a major technical problem because my job is to awaken you, and I'm failing miserably, so I need your help. <laughs> so we're not in an ego era anymore. And, you know, this is why pretty much everybody I meet is in egoholics unanimous. <laughs> you know, it used to be just alcoholics and anonymous. Now it's not anonymous because everybody meets everybody else there, you know. There's nobody who's either not going or who, who will be going next week, you know. So... Uh, we're all egoholics, and we won't let go of the damn ego, even though it's the Titanic that's taken us down. So it would be useful to know what's, what is causing us to hold on to this death drive, this self-sabotage. And it is an addiction to the ego. Okay, So why would we be addicted to our enemy? Right? It, we know that we are not really egos. and it, The ego is a structure of consciousness that one has chosen to identify with. It's a computer program. You get that? It's a program. It is a program that is obsolete. It does not work. It's one of those programs that, that uh, some companies will release that can, has so many bells and whistles on it that it, it will crash the moment you try to do two things at once, you know, and, and it cannot uh, function. It looks really good on the outside, and you read all the things it's supposed to be able to do, but the ego actually can't do anything. 
and and it will fall into a, a hole as soon as you you ask it you know to do one more thing than than it's supposed to do. Work ends at five. I will not stay till five o one. I'm sorry, you know. And if you make somebody do that, then they're going to have a meltdown or a temper tantrum or whatever. So they they can't uh, they can't creatively go beyond whatever box that they've been put in, and they can't even function within that box anymore. So what is going on? What is the fear that would keep one uh, uh, using a program that does not get you the results that you want? Right? Most people will delete it and get a new program. They will upgrade the system. The ego cannot be upgraded. It's being downgraded, you see. The only way to deal with the situation is to get out of the ego entirely and then realize you do not need that kind of a program, and you want to create a customized program at the very least, because the ego that you, you are saddled with has algorithms in it that you did not put in there. It's like when you go on to websites now and they put a cookie you know, into your program or something like that. I need to figure out how to get them out, but, but my computer's probably got 100 you know, cookies. Who knows what it's doing to the thing? I don't know. Don't answer that question. But the point is that your ego is having cookies dropped into it almost in every interaction that you have. And you're being controlled and, uh, and moved around and manipulated by all of these cookies that you think you want to eat, too, and th therefore you're not going to let go of them, right? They're called that for a reason. You know, they're bait, clickbait, but, you know, once you, you get the bait, you can't get it out so very easily, can you? So the ego is full of all of these foreign objects that actually make up most of the things that you think about that have nothing to do with you, but they're put in there by other people or commercials, right? Or you know, uh, internet messages and subliminal ones at that, and all kinds of other uh, external influences that are not necessarily benevolent. So, the ego is a program that is dysfunctional and obsolete, but what happens if you delete the program? You see, the problem is, you, the program is who you thought you were, and the moment you delete it, you will realize you don't know who you are, and that you don't know uh, how to function, because the ego functions by knowing how other people see you, or at least believing you do. It projects uh, a world in which it then knows how to react to. It's really only reacting to its own projection, but it can usually drop enough cookies in other people that they'll act in a way that it projects that they're supposed to act, right? So the ego is very good at that, and it'll arrange things to make it believe that it lives in a consistent world. And it wants to live in that consistent world. And that's why when there's any change, if somebody dies or leaves, your world is no longer consistent and you start to get destabilized. You know, this is the mourning phenomenon. But it actually is not just limited to that. It's limited to any change or loss that takes place either on the external or on the internal psychological plane. And this is the key, because the ego doesn't want to lose its own internalized superego figures, its in internalized fantasy figures, its internalized others that make it feel like it's not alone. Okay. So.
if you want liberation, how many people want liberation from the ego? Yeah? All right. You're crazy. If you do, this will enable you to get it today. <laughs> the bad news is God equals abandonment. And the ego operates for one purpose only, which is to avoid abandonment. The ego is terrified of abandonment. And to reach God means you have abandoned the ego. The ego has been abandoned. You have deleted it. You've done the worst possible thing you can do to yourself. And so the moment you begin to go out of the ego, the ego's terror of abandonment and its fury that you would dare consider leaving it for God <laughs> will cause it to have such a meltdown that you will not get two inches away from it before you're pulled back. You'll be accused of disloyalty. You'll be accused of being an idiot. You'll be accused uh, of being a fraud. You'll be accused of of being someone who won't be able to handle it, you'll see, you'll be a accused of somebody, you'll be sorry, you'll miss out on all the jouissance I could have given you, you know. Uh, it, it, will, it will cause you to doubt this idea of going to God. And there is no God, you'll see. Atheism is true. Don't you dare go, you, I won't let you back if you go, you know. I'll get somebody else, I'll get a spirit to come in and replace you. You'll see, I don't need you. It'll use any trick in the book. And you'll become so anxious the moment you start to go toward God and the abandonment red lights are flashing and the anxiety is welling up and the little infant is screaming, come back, mommy. And can mommy really leave and be disloyal to poor baby eagle? <laughs> no, mommy can't do that. Oh, sorry, God. I, I, I have... A higher priority. How many can relate to that? <laughs> do, you, do you really want liberation? Or do you want to take care of baby ego? <laughs> it's that simple, really. Okay, so in, in the Vedic system, they talk about gunas, right? These are qualities. The moment, the moment that you turn your attention toward God and say, yes, I'm going to abandon the ego, I'm done with it, I'm disgusted with it, it's a useless, hopeless, bumbling, obsolete program that crashes all the time, I'm free. The moment you do that, you go into sattva guna. You go into sattva guna and there's a reaction. Okay? Sattva guna does not come without a price. And the price is just what we talked about, that the ego will complain, and it will create fear, it will create a panic attack. It will do anything to try to hold you back in its orbit. Okay? If you can endure its attack upon you for daring to leave it behind and not give in to its screams, the screams will gradually die out. Okay? It will die of starvation if you do not feed it your attention. Okay? 
But you instead, if you pay your attention to it, you're feeding it, you're nourishing it. And you're acting as if it's a reality when it's just a memory trace and a program that doesn't function. Why would you want to continue to nourish that at the expense of your real self and God consciousness? So what happens is that at this moment, the, the, the sattva uh, is able to see that the abandonment, because it equals God, it's a good thing. The abandonment is not something that's a danger. The abandonment is an abandonment of unreality, uh, an abandonment of a delusion. Okay? But the ego that is left, that, that fragment that is not in sattva, but actually in tamas guna, because there's a little bit left in the tamas guna, the zombie little baby ego, it says, no, it's not that abandonment is God, it's that God is abandonment. And abandonment cannot be good. It's the worst thing in the world. It, it is the ultimate uh, demon, okay? And abandonment to the baby means death. So the tamasic fragment wants to bring you out of sattva back into this lowest guna. And what it promises is it will be so inert that it will cause you to forget your sense of failing yourself for having fallen back. It says, don't worry. We'll pretend this never happened. I'll forgive you. Just don't try it again. <laughs> and then one says, okay. And, and one chooses to be what's called technically a zombie. Okay? Because you have now forgotten that you have forgotten and everything is fine, and you watch TV, and you open another beer, and uh, life goes on the way it's meant to go on, right? And the ego program still goes, and you muddle through, and all the glitches happen, but you say, I have no control, and that's just the way it is. Okay, that's a kind of acceptance of one's fate, but it's not the level of acceptance uh, that is of the real. It's an acceptance of the unreal. So, the, the good news is this, that the tamas guna means enslavement. Now, the second worst fear that the ego has after abandonment is enslavement. Now, usually, it does not configure enslavement as being in the tamasic guna, however. What it usually does is it projects enslavement out onto another. And it, it acts out its relationship of not wanting to be abandoned and not wanting to be enslaved in a dyadic couple collusion. Okay? So that with someone else, it decides... I can't lose you, please don't ever abandon me, but I'm not going to give myself to you because I'd be enslaved to you. So there's no way I'm going to do that. So I want to get not too far away, but not too close. Because either one is, means disaster for me. 
So il n'y a pas de rapport, okay? You can't have a, a, a truly intimate relationship. The meaning of intimate, the, the tim in it is timid, timidity, fear. There's a fear of going too close and being enslaved, owned by the other, engulfed by the other, and a fear of being abandonment. Thus, one creates the third guna, rajas. Rajas means I'm going to run away from both of these polarities. I'm going to try to live on a razor's edge in which I keep you just distant enough that you'll continue to uh, pay the rent, but I'm not going to go close enough that you'll feel secure that you own me. Okay? Uh, and, and this is the way it tries to run its relationships, in such a way that it will uh, always be able to maintain the illusion of freedom. But that illusion comes at the price of a hostile dependency and an inability to love, because to the ego, love means I become your slave. All right? So, the rajasic ego, is, rajasic guna means that's the guna in which you run away from yourself. You run away from both enslavement and the, the God consciousness that the sattva indicates, makes you aware is a, a possibility. Uh, and it keeps you functioning and so obsessed with your functioning on the physical plane and how much you have to do, how busy you are, you know, how, how many people you have to take care of. And, and you self-justify yourself with all of that so that you don't have to think about the horror of the fact that you have abandoned God and that you have become enslaved to the illusion of avoiding enslavement. But it's your real enslavement now within the rajasic workaholic, which is another form of egoholic uh, self-abandonment. Right? That's, that's the way the ego generally tries to run its life, as much as possible as a workaholic until the moment it becomes physically exhausted and it falls into tamas without passing through sattva. <laughs> Make sure you never have to pass through the sattva. So, this is the, the way that the ego plays the game of life. And it uh, dooms itself to loss. Why? Because the ego's not real. And it has it made the choice to abandon God, which is its own real self, and to abandon its own real happiness, and chooses to obscure that fact by, by obsessing itself with pleasure whether it's retail therapy uh, or it's going to the most expensive restaurants or flying to other continents to go to concerts of music or it's doing whatever it's doing to increase its massive amount of pleasure that overcomes its realization that it has sabotaged its own self-realization and liberation. It wants to get as much pleasure as it can and, and be saturated by never-ending pleasure. But of course, pleasures all become less and less pleasurable. They turn into pain or boredom or into repulsion. And, uh, and then the anxiety comes back and, and one must again run away even from that into more work, work, work. I've got to 
I've got to, you know, give up gratification in order to, to get, uh, to accomplish more, produce, become somebody. But it's all just a running away from the fact that pleasure itself no longer functions in its, uh, its intended uh, sense of being an object that can make you forget the loss of the bliss of God consciousness. And it falls into a hell realm in which gradually none of the props work any longer. The pleasures are realized to be dead ends, mirages. Uh, they, they, they lead to the horror of, uh, of an actual abandonment by another or a dumping of that other and then feeling the abandonment anyway but feeling it as a horizontal abandonment of just another person. Well, a person's replaceable. That's easy. I can you know, go online and at some dating thing and get another one you know, a day later. So I, there's no shortage of replacement parts you know, for this element of the program. But, of course, the next one's not going to work any better than the last one, and probably the next one will want to enslave you even more than the last one did, and uh, it will become another battle. And life becomes, again, a rajasic hell realm of running away from what you just worked so hard to get. So, some people relate to this, actually. And it's insane, right? Is this, is this the sane way to live? Well, this is the only way the ego can live any longer because it is terrified of the abandonment that is God. So if you want to be liberated, we have to get past this obstacle. And the only way to get past this obstacle is to kill the ego and its sense of fear of abandonment. You see, what people don't realize is if you actually go through ego death, there won't be any baby crying anymore and bringing you back down and, and telling you to be afraid and telling you to uh, find some you know, new uh, sugar daddy or, or some new uh, virgin whore or some whatever new object that you hold on to to give you a sense of solidity and existence and the sense of being loved and not abandoned, right? All of that charade that the ego is forced to play in order to, uh, to maintain its, um, its stability. Because otherwise it decompensates very rapidly and it can't maintain itself in solitude on its own. And it cannot accept God as its beloved. Because God's not concrete enough. Where? Where? I can't see it with my five senses, right? It doesn't exist. To the ego, if you can't hug it, it's not real. <laughs> so, the very idea of realizing you can't hug it because you're not a body and that you have never been hugged either, frankly, because it's only your body that got hugged and it didn't really do much for you. Is it possible to let go of that desire that's part of a lethal fantasy 
and enter into that infinite presence that doesn't need to be hugged, doesn't want to be hugged, can't be hugged, but is filled with the lum luminous presence of that fullness that, that consummates the whole journey of life and, and gives you absolute peace and bliss that you're trying to get through the hug and through the sex and through the drugs and you can't get it or you get it for moments and it turns into its opposite. So if you want it in a real way that lasts, the price is going through the illusion of abandonment and finding the real self that will never abandon you and that is you. And that unborn presence that doesn't need to hold on to anything is the freedom you've been looking for. And it's been you all along. If you were only willing to go through that plane of pain to get to the bliss that lies beyond it. And it's not beyond it in space. It's beyond it in vibrational frequency, but it's internal. It's the very core of your being, your heart, not physical heart, but the heart center, the center of your being, your feeling. And once you reach it, then there's love, love without an object and love without a subject, just love in its pure form. That's infinite. Why not be in a state of infinite love that never ends, that isn't focused on, oh, I love this one person, and that one person is gone, and my, or I must dedicate my life to that one person, that one child. I can only love that one being. I can't love anyone else, or my mother, or this family system, or this object of some kind. But what about love in itself? That isn't simply a covert desire not to be abandoned by the other, but is actually love in its true meaning. That's what we're talking about. That's what God is. It's that love that only arises and expresses itself as solitude, as the one self that is all, and it's the allness of it and the nothingness of it, the zero point that is the infinity of love, and the infinity of beauty that is the cosmos, and the infinity of intelligence and creativity and joy that never ends. But the ego must die for that to be realized. That's the sacrifice. Until that sacrifice is made, the symptoms will continue to arise, physical and emotional symptoms, because symptoms are meant to cover the insight that you have failed to kill the illusory ego, which is the only thing that you must do. It's the only duty. It is the Dharma. You want to know the essence of Dharma? It is to kill this child because this child prevents you from living a life that is joyous, functional, beautiful, noble, and, and, and durable and without fear, and without inaccurate relationships. In other words, if you want to be able to live in community and sustain community, the ego death, that sacrifice, must happen first. In the ancient schools of yoga, you had to already take 
the yamas and niyamas, the vows, at the threshold of the yoga school. You weren't admitted unless you formally accepted those vows at the beginning. Not that you would have to be convinced over a period of years within the school to do that. No, that was the entrance requirement, the prerequisite to getting into the school. And then the, the real development of the siddhis and the advanced levels of consciousness could be taught, not until then. So, you know, yoga began not as a teaching of non-duality, but as a teaching of duality. Okay, the first philosophy of yoga that developed and was taught in the ancient Vedic schools was called Sankhya philosophy. In case people haven't come across the term. In Sankhya philosophy, they recognize there are two elements to reality, which they called Purusha and Prakriti. Prakriti means the five elements, nature, the world, the res extensa, to use the term of Descartes. It is, it is the world of, uh, of appearances, phenomena, and Purusha is the consciousness. And the problem is, the consciousness in its ego state is entangled with matter. So consciousness has falsely identified with the body. Okay? And because consciousness is identified with the body, it creates a knot, a granta. And this knot is the ego. And the ego keeps you functioning as a body in the world. That's its intention. That's its whole modus operandi. The function of yoga is to cut the knot so that you can separate Purusha from Prakriti. This is the whole meaning of neti neti, not this, not this. You're not the body, you're not the mind, you're not the senses, you're not experience, you're... You're not time or space. You're not any of it, right? What are you? You are the pure presence that has no form, that uh, is unborn, undeath, uh, undying, but that has no objective correlative. You are it, but you'll never see it or know it. So the state in which Purusha has successfully disidentified from Prakriti and can now be in solitude, this is Kevalya. Kevalya is the goal of the Sankhya Yogi, to abide as that pure awareness no longer enmeshed in a material world. But the Advaita tradition in yoga that came later made a tiny correction of this intention. And by the way, 
the, I've said this in other retreats, but I'll repeat it. The K became a C, the V and the L became reversed, and the V became a B, and the word became in English celibacy. Kaivalya is the equivalent of celibacy. The celibate is one who lives in solitude. And it's the fact of, of non-sexual activity is secondary to the fact of one's living in a solitude of consciousness that is identified only as bodiless infinite presence. The, the actions of the body afterward are simply derivative functions of that logic. But it, it's not about renouncing sexual activity. It's about renouncing the false enmeshment in body consciousness. And then that effortlessly results in a different way of living that is more noble and doesn't want to end up in a mirage. Okay, now the Advaitins said that yes, it's true that Purusha must separate from Prakriti, but not because Prakriti is an other that you shouldn't associate with. No, it's not that. It is that you have made an error in thinking there is two, in thinking there is actually a Prakriti. You see, the ego lives in non-duality, but it's a non-duality of materialism. It doesn't realize that it's consciousness. It's so identified with matter. And it has to cut that cord to realize, oh no, actually I'm not matter, I'm consciousness. But then the next phase is to realize, well, what I took for being a material world is actually only a dream. It's really part of my consciousness. Because what is a dream? Does a dream exist separate from the mind that is dreaming it? No, it's, it is that mind in action, giving information to itself. That's all. So actually, there is no prakriti to separate from. That's the real separation from prakriti. That's the non-dual way of understanding yoga. It isn't a union of two or a disunion of two. Here we have yoga as actually a, a v-yoga, a separation. But then what is, what, are, what is the relationship of these two? They are, neither one of them actually exists. There is no Purusha and there is no Prakriti because this is a reification of two principles, neither one of which has any objective reality. Both of them are dreams. And so to get beyond the idea that I am Purusha, you have to cut the I-thought. And when there is no I, that I is nothing. It's not Purusha, it's not Prakriti. It's, it's not anything at all, and that is the liberation. So one has to go beyond all conceptual schemas and all sense that there was anything to be liberated from in order for the liberation to be complete. And then one can live at peace in the dream, in the prakriti, knowing that the Prakriti is really Purusha, and the Purusha is really Shiva, and Shiva is just the zero point that we're all you know, making up as being a someone or a something. None of it is anything but 
the one mind that is playing, playing its own potentialities out for itself. But there is no other. And there is no self-observing this movie. You are the movie, and you're the director, and the cinematographer, and uh, the scriptwriter, and you're the actor in it, and you're the audience of it, but you're also none of those. So, that's liberation, because there is no role to play, and therefore you're free to play any role that comes up. Why resist? It, none of it has anything to do with you or reflects upon you, because there is no you to be reflected upon. And since there's no me, I'm not going to keep talking. Namaste.